the pitch to, to EA, which I never thought they would do, is, okay, well, just give me all the money up front, haha, and I'm going to go record all this crazy stuff, and then I'm going to cut it up in the computer, and I'm going to trigger it, like, in the computer, and that's how I'm going to write the music, and then you'll have control over everything. And they're like, great, go do that. And it was like, um... Hey, y'all, you're listening to episode 27 of Composer Code, the podcast all about video game music and the fine folks that make it. I interview composers and I try to tease out their workflows and proven patterns of success so that I can share that knowledge with all of you. My guest today is the one, the only... Jason Graves. Now, when you think of Jason Graves, you probably think of Dead Space. That's fair, rightfully so. We talk about his work on that survival horror classic quite a bit. But did you also know that he recorded a live bluegrass country fusion album for an indie game about genetically modifying chickens? Probably not. Did you also know that he contracted out a sculptor in the North Carolina area to create an instrument out of scrap metal the size of a fridge? for use on the Tomb Raider 2013 soundtrack. You probably didn't know that either. Uh, Jason is really one of the nicest people I've talked to in this space. And I know I say that all the time. I've talked to some pretty awesome people, but he is just so nice. He was so generous with his time and knowledge, and I can honestly see why he's such a delight to work with. He shared his knowledge about oozing into the industry, and you'll understand what I mean by that here in a second. His philosophy on gear and networking and communication with clients and the music business and really all sorts of things that will be super valuable to game composers at any point in their career. He also gave me an inventory of all his animals, which uh, there are a lot. He seriously has like a farm. It's uh, it's pretty awesome. Anyway, I'm Matt, your host, and without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jason Graves. One of the things I saw, I think this was years ago, but it stuck with me, was you said, you know, you're like, I don't think it's very helpful to say that we break into the games industry. It's not like we bust down the door, say, here I am. And you said it's more like we ooze into the game yeah. industry. And and I think ooze. I kind of know what you're talking about. But could you unpack what you meant by that phrase? Because I think it's a helpful way to describe it. And I think you could describe any industry that way, honestly. Um, mm. I mean, really any industry, whether it's the movie industry, any sort of a creative meets commerce kind of industry. Um, you know, the overnight successes like that maybe a band has this platinum selling album and everyone's like, wow, where did they come from? Well, when you do your research, I promise you that band's been together for 15 years playing at bars and roller rinks back in the eighties or whatever. And they've been paying their dues, um, you know, doing their time on the road and everywhere else probably had three other albums released before this one actually made it big, but it just seems like they're an overnight success. And I think the same thing applies for composers. Maybe someone can get out of school and land some huge job or a small job, let's say, that becomes a huge marketable game, film, TV show, um, whatever it would be. Uh, but the chances are it's going to be some time. Honestly, I think that's, well, I would say a good thing, but I think the reason behind that and the reason it's a good thing is I know if I was given any of the projects that I've worked on in the last two years, if those were handed to me on a silver platter, like right when I got out of USC, I would have said yes and I would have jumped in and I'm sure I would have learned a lot, but I promise you I wouldn't have had the same quality of output that I do now, just from the sheer thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours I've put in 
to, uh, sure. you know, kind of fixing that internal voice to where like, no, I don't want it to sound like that. I want it to sound more like this. Um, mm-hmm. What do they say? It's something like, I don't remember the number of hours. The number of hours you have to 10, do something to be hours. considered. 10,000 hours. Yeah, it's about what, like five years or 10 years. I did the math when that first yeah. came out. But I think that holds true, especially with art, because it's so subjective. And as a composer, uh, the only thing I can really think of the equivalent being is like either a chef or a visual artist that's doing paintings because people mm-hmm. take it in immediately. Right. Like with a chef, you don't, ha- you don't have to have any idea how they fixed it or even what the ingredients are. You take a bite and you either say, I like it or I don't like it or, you know, it's OK, but or I really like it. I just wish. And people can do the same thing with music without any musical vocabulary or knowledge at all. And I have no problem with that. Uh, I usually don't even speak with musical vocabulary. I like using emotions to talk. Um, mm-hmm. But that's what I meant by by oozing. It takes a long time to sort of establish yourself, establish your, your style if you have one, um, but your voice in particular, the, the tricks and tips and little feathers in your cap that you get as you work over, it's been, hold on, I'm doing the math, almost, almost 25 years for me, not in games, but just in music uh, professionally in general since I got out of graduate school at USC. That's the ooze, you know, and I still kind of feel like I'm waiting to, um, you know, quote unquote, make it. <laughs> I think that was the, yeah. the, the second part. Uh, there was someone I knew a long time ago who was just bemoaning every time they got a project. It wasn't the project, air quotes around the. It's like, wait, sure. I just need this one, you know, I just need this one big thing that's going to put my name on the map. And even back mm-hmm. then, I thought, seems like you're setting yourself up for um, disappointment, you know, personally. Right. Because you never really know what what it's going to be like once that thing is released. And maybe the thing that you love the most ends up being the most disappointing commercially. Does that mean that it was bad for you personally, you know, on a on a um, creative level? Absolutely not. Something that right, you may have just right. thrown some cues at because you didn't have time becomes one of the biggest things and the thing that you become known for. And I'm not speaking about anyone in particular. I'm just sort of riffing. There's sure. no control over all that, especially in games. You're riding on the coattails of the success of the game. And if the game's not a big hit, a lot of people aren't going to play it, which means a lot of people aren't going to listen. And I'm I'm going off on a bit of a tangent again. But that's what I meant by oozing. You know, you, you need to just be set for the long, slow and steady uh the, the marathon, not the sprint. The, the Mr. Fredrickson thing I did on my YouTube channel, you know, with my tortoise eating. Slow and steady That's wins right. the race, right? It's a great metaphor. Was there a moment where you had oozed so much and then you kind of woke up one day and you were like, <laughs> <laughs> this out of context, that sounds so weird, but you woke up one day and you were just like, whoa, like I'm in the industry. Like maybe maybe you didn't say like, oh man, I've made it, but you at least said, I'm here. Like, this is what I do now. Yes. And it was super defining. And, and my thought wasn't, while well, I'm in the industry. My thought was, well, what the heck am I supposed to do now? And that was when I won uh, a BAFTA mm. for Dead Space. And, and I don't mean to put the, the winning of the award in a negative light at all, but it was not expected whatsoever. Um, I was even shocked that it got nominated for anything. I was so not expecting it that when it won for Best Audio, which was presented before the music award, the, uh, the, the kind of creative director, I think, I can't remember who was there. Someone else and myself went up on stage and we both gave our little 30 second thank you thing. And I pretty much did my thank you 
as if that was the only award we were going to win because it was for sound design, voiceover, and music. It's a three-part award. It's called mm-hmm. Use of Audio, I think. And I kind of said everything I needed to say. And then we went and sat down, and then almost immediately after sitting down, the next award was for music, and they called Dead Space again. And I was just, I was out of things to say. I had no idea that that was going to happen. And it really was one of those, I mean, I said to my wife, like, well, what am I supposed to do now? I'm, what was this? I'm like 30, early, I'm like 33 or something. You know, I'm 33 years old. I'm seven or eight years into composing for games. And, and this happened, which is great. But how would I ever top an experience like this again? Um, but yes, I definitely felt like I had finally arrived. And a lot of things did change for me then in terms of getting better representation. You know, I got a, a proper agent and and uh, having some name recognition, which is priceless, you just can't pay for that at all. And I have mm-hmm. fought a little bit against some of that name recognition just because I think it's honestly with a name like Graves and a game like Dead Space, everyone assumed, number one, <laughs> that it was a stage name, right? They're like, so what's your real name? I'm like, no, it's right. Graves. I mean, I got, I got made fun of in elementary school because there was this dog food called Gravy Train and that's what everybody called me. You know, it's oh not a made gosh. up name, believe me. But I think as a result of the success of the game, and the how easy it is to remember my last name. People just think, oh, Graves, yeah, he writes scary music. Mm. I've tried hard to push against that, and as well as embracing it. I mean, I've got a, a horror game coming out this summer in a couple of months, and literally I think I just finished the last edit for the soundtrack today. So it's not to say that I don't enjoy doing it. I really do. But as much as I enjoy doing horror, I also enjoy doing the exact opposite of horror. What's something that comes to mind that's just the furthest outside the Jason Graves dead space sort of niche that you've done in your in your career fat chicken okay you don't even you don't even know what that is i i don't to my shame i pride myself on doing immense research on my guests but i don't remember fat chicken so this is good this is a deep cut so tell me a little bit about fat chicken and your (laughs) it is a deep cut so it it was an independent game an ios game made by a local developer here in uh, in north carolina where literally i was recording some of the instruments and the whole team like all five of them were sitting in the studio with me while we recorded it it was super cool the idea is it's um so it's a factory farming game but it's a very tongue-in-cheek where like you have like antibiotics and chemicals and things that you're pumping up these cartoon animals with to try to get them as, you know, as meaty and marketable as possible. It's obviously (laughs) an anti-factory farming game. Right. Through its tongue-in-cheek. Nice little Um, social critique But knowing, yeah, exactly. I mean, very, very cartoony. Nothing serious. But uh, with the music, I mean, if you've seen the audio arc thing on YouTube, you know I'm a huge animal lover and we have chickens and ducks and goats and geese and everything else um so i really love the idea of scoring a game like that and um yeah it's an indie game they didn't have the kind of budget that like dead space would have but i just threw everything i had at it in the span of a week and brought a friend of mine over to play some guitars and i played the other stuff so it's um it's all live which is super cool that's awesome and it's basically like like country music gone awry. Like with Dead Space, I sort of took the orchestra and necromorphed it, you know, like mangled it beyond all recognition. So it was this terrifying thing, uh, musically speaking, the way the 
necromorphs were, right? So I wanted to do that with country music, basically. So it might be in an odd meter, like it's in 5-4 or 9-8 or something like that, or there's some funky little hitches in it here and there, but it's very country, like lots of banjo and dobro. That's what Steve Howell, a local a local guitar player who's played on everything for me for the past 20 years, he played all kinds of fun country licks and things. Um, there's a little bit of drum machine in there, but a lot of it's just me playing drums and percussion and sort of affecting it the way you would be, you know, injecting these things into the cartoon chickens to make them bigger. did the whole thing in a week and uh, didn't use any EQ or anything either since this is a composer podcast I thought it would be fun to uh, like if I'm going to record my acoustic guitar I have way too many microphones let me just admit that right now forgive me father for I have sinned I own too many microphones (laughs) so what I did was I would take like four small diaphragm condensers and just basically tape them together on four different stands so that they wouldn't move phase align all of them and I would point them at the 12th fret of the guitar and I would play and I intentionally picked like maybe a cheap one that I got a long time ago that had a lot of top end and then maybe like a Neumann uh, small diaphragm condenser that has a real smooth sound and then maybe a tube is in there as well. So I would choose the microphones that were already phase aligned and just like mix the faders to get the EQ kind of sound I wanted, if that makes sense. And then So there's no... No EQ, definitely some compression, but I didn't EQ anything. I just wanted to see if it would work. And I I mean, it worked to a certain extent. You know, you always box yourself in, at least I end up boxing myself in and think, you know, I could just like scoop out a little bit of, you know, right there. And I thought, no, 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 I'm going to mess with it. Sometimes I'd even invert the phase on the recorded channel of a mic to cancel something else out instead of since I couldn't use EQ according to my own rule. And that was a, you know, just a fun way of achieving the same thing without throwing a plug-in up. I can just picture a meme where it's like, dude, this soundtrack is amazing. What EQ plugin did you use? It's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> four microphones taped together to a stand. That is, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. I'm looking at a Bandcamp review where a gentleman describes it as mutated bluegrass. And oh, a, it's perfect. A wonderful yes. surprise from Jason Graves. So I'm, I can't wait to check this out. <laughs> It was so much fun to do. I mean, it was so much fun to do. I'm curious, you know, I imagine this this varies from from soundtrack to soundtrack and and has evolved over your career. But how do you usually begin a piece or at least like so even from the point of you're commissioned to do, you know, a certain piece? Is there is there an amount of or or a soundtrack, for example, is there an is there an amount of research that you do? Is there an amount of sort of like looking at the subject material or reference tracks, any transcribing? I'm just curious, what does it look like once you receive a commission all the way to the point to where you're actually putting notes down in your DAW? It's always a little different, like you said, but let's just talk about a game because that's going to make it easier. That'll narrow the scope a little bit. Yeah, perfect. If I'm 
first starting out in the title, 90% of the time I go and visit the developer. And early in my career, when they didn't have budgets big enough, I would fly myself out there. Um, wow. I did it a couple of times to Europe and I did it a lot to the States, like going to Los Angeles or San Francisco or Seattle, because that, that, you know, it's a huge what? deal. I bet you that made like a really good impression. It, it made a big difference for me just in terms of this is why I like you. I like that you have your video screen open because mm-hmm. I can see you. I'm sorry that my camera isn't set up yet. That's but okay. No problem, man. I feel like, let's say that you and I are working on a game. You're the audio director. If we're going to be working on this thing and it's a big game and there's, you know, hundreds of minutes of music over the span of the next couple of years, the very least I want to know is like what it's like to hang out with you in a room. Now, these days, especially, obviously, we're going to Zoom, but all pandemic aside, Mm -hmm. just spending two or three days hanging out with the audio director, going and meeting the folks on the art team, you know, getting, you know, the uh, like the big presentation that the creative director would be giving to the publisher in terms of where the game was in scope and how they wanted to deliver and schedules and yada, yada, yada. It just just for me, it makes a big difference being able to hang out and see them in person and you get to know them and they're all different personalities. Obviously, most of the time, the folks I'm hanging out with, male or female for audio directors, just so cool, so cool and personable and down to earth. And either they're musicians themselves or they've been doing the audio director gig long enough that they're they're not scared or intimidated by music. And mm. like I mentioned, I always talk emotionally anyway. So I don't say, you know, should the flute be mezzo forte? Mm-hmm. I just say, mm-hmm. you know, do you want it a little colder or, or, or whatever? You know, do you need it a little more scary? Like we could do a hollow kind of sound. But being able to know how to direct that kind of conversation when you're in the heat of battle 18 months down the road and there's a milestone coming and, you know, something needs to be tweaked for whatever reason, it makes a big difference having that personal background. It's like the groundwork, you know, it's the foundation for, I think, on which everything should be based. So it also makes it easier to read emails. You know, you get to know this person and mm. if they say something, it's like, oh, oh, I can I can tell this needs to be done right now. Like they're being pretty serious or maybe everything's, you know, sort of off the cuff and, and lighthearted with them. So you understand how to kind of shade the direction of their emails accordingly. It, it's hard working remotely. I think composers are really the exception to the rule. I know they have lots of remote work in games, but the music, come on. I would say this to anyone, not just for a composer podcast, but the music is really bringing the heart and soul of the game. That and the voiceovers, um, the performances, those are the only two tangible emotional connections that we have. So you're talking about half of the emotion is the the music, or you could say a third if you want to include sound design, which is also important. But to be able to get that right kind of tone, it just seems like a face-to-face at least once with some games, I mean, with the Dead Space games, I think even just for the first one, I was in San Francisco at least three or four times. Plus we had recording sessions. So I knew those guys really, really well. I like that personal connection. You know, maybe they're overseas and it's cost prohibitive. Maybe it's now and you physically can't fly there. That's totally fine too. You just do the best with what you've got. But a lot of the info dump that I get in person is just a lot easier to absorb than um, looking at tons of screenshots and trying to read a script and flowcharts and all that kind of more business oriented, you know, we need to log it and it needs to have references and the big wigs, big wigs need to be able to sign off on it. And that doesn't do a lot for me emotionally speaking to, you know, flowcharts, the easiest way to kill my musical creativity for sure. <laughs> I can totally understand. So that. it's right. It's just not, um, it's not very satisfying creatively. 
I'm curious if you could expand upon any advice that you would have for composers to uh, to communicate with with audio directors. So so far, I've heard two two big things: communicate in language that they understand, not technical language, but language that can is emotional language that they can understand and speak in return when it comes to the audio and music, and also just get as much face time with them as possible, if if possible, and uh, uh, to better sort of internalize their vision. And I was just curious if you could keep going down this this particular path of advice for creating or curating the best relationship between you, the composer and your stakeholder, really the, the person, you know, the creative engine of the game, you know, the, either that's the producer or the audio director, that sort of thing. Well, the, yeah, those are definitely great. I, I saw John Williams conducting a rehearsal for the Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh orchestra years ago. And at the time they were the highest paid orchestra in the country. So they were monsters. Like they were really, really good. Wow. I never would have thought and it was about to be the highest paid orchestra. Right. Right. Now at the time, I don't know now, but it's because of the Heinz family. They're from Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. Um, so it was literally Heinz Hall is what it was called. And gotcha. it was, it was like gilded in gold. I mean, it was just incredibly ornate and sounded amazing. So these musicians are on point. I mean, they're just as capable as anyone in LA or London, Vienna, you know, they're world-class musicians and everything sounded like a hi-fi, super pristine record as soon as they started. And these were just first runs. They wow. practiced obviously, but this was John Williams just like going through the paces. Like he literally started Star Wars and they went, but then he just cut them all off. He's like, I think we all know how that one goes. Okay, next. And everybody <laughs> laughed. Incredible. But he would occasionally stop and, and move on. And then other times he would stop and just make little notes. And he never said anything technical. He never said, it was always like, um, what was the one? He was saying something to the violas. They had a line. He used, he'd say, bring that out a little more, please. Or a little more emotion in, in, in that passage right there. Wow. Very... You know, very simple, very understated. It wasn't a huge realization for me, but it was super cool to see that he did things like that. I think the more you know about whomever it is that you're working with personally, especially if you're the same age. I mean, I was doing a lot of big AAA kinds of games, especially kind of starting in my early to mid 30s. And it just so happened that most of the audio directors were about the same age as I was, especially kind of when I hit 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dead Space, Don Vecca was maybe 10 years older than me at the time, but super cool guy. He's an upright bass player, plays in a jazz combo. I mean, do you get any cooler of a personality than a bass player? I think those are my favorite musician personalities maybe a trombone player but um just just you know super chill super cool but the more you know anyone personally the easier it is to relate to them professionally and vice versa especially it's the kind of thing that if something happens where um well like so so today right my zoom was asking me to reconfigure all my audio inputs and i'm scrolling through 64 different inputs trying to figure out where input one is because they're not in numerical order. Let's say I was 10 minutes late because of that. Well, you don't know if that's a thing that happens with me all the time or not. You know, you don't really know how I am personally. You don't know how fastidious and sort of micromanaged I am with times and things like that. But if we have gotten to know each other over a period of time, and let's say this was a deadline driven meeting, you'd be like, it's cool. He's going to be, he's going to be on any second now. He's, he's punctual. You know, he's serious about this stuff Mm -hmm. and you can talk about it all day long. Oh, don't worry, Matt. I'm punctual. I'm serious. Uh, 
That doesn't make a bit of difference. It's all about action speaking louder than words. I can't help but feel like your personality lends itself so well to that. And just the fact that that you are obviously uh, very talented, not to blow smoke or anything, but you're very talented. Plus... I know. Plus you have, it's the biggest, it's the biggest temptation for me not to just flatter all my guests. You know what I mean? I have to really rein it in. <laughs> um, but um, you're, uh, and you're talented, but you also have this, this likability factor. It's like, it's just, it makes you a secret weapon in the, in the game world. You're just, you know, so I think, I think that's huge because sometimes you can either have the likability, but maybe not the talent or, or the experience or the talent, but you're just kind of a jerk to, to work with, you know, or, or you're not, <laughs> you, you don't really like people, you know, and, and that can, uh, you know, that can be, that can, you know, lead to some, some dead ends. Yeah. So you mentioned Chris Young and I, I remember reading on your vlog the story about how you uh, were in school, USC, and uh, he was the composer for Exorcism of Emily Rose. Is that right? Right. Yes. And he handed you the alien score after you had uh, landed dead space. And he said, everything you need to know about writing scary music is in this score. Um, and you uh, and you poured over that score. You photocopied it. And I'm just curious if if you can think back to this. And I, forgive me. I know this is this was a while ago. But what were two or three of the biggest takeaways for you, or aha moments when you were studying that score in preparation for Dead Space? Oh, that's super easy. I don't that that takes no. Um, come on, Alien. Yeah, and to to be clear, we're talking about the the Goldsmith score to Alien, the first one, uh, Horner score and Goldenthal score are all equally amazing. But that first one, well, I don't remember if it was the first cue or not, but the chord that comes up that I think in the film was replaced uh, by, well, Elgar or something like that. I don't remember the piece they used, the trumpet piece that they replaced it with. But there's this chord in the strings. It's more like a texture that plays. And I always wanted to know what that was. Because it sounded like it didn't have a root. It sounded like some sort of a suspension, mm-hmm. but it also sounded kind of dissonant, but it didn't sound like a cluster, you know, like someone just grabbing a wad of notes with one hand on the piano. So that was the first thing I looked for. And I'm sure that score plus uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jurassic Park, E.T., um, a whole bunch of other conductor scores. Um, I'll just go ahead and admit it because I don't think there's a crime to it. I, I was the one that um, freed those to the public back in the days when we were all actually photocopying the scores and mailing them to each other. Everyone was charging an arm and the leg for all of them. And I just kind of gave them out to some folks. Dude, and you are doing the Lord's proliferate. work. I am, I am a beneficiary. Exactly. I'm a beneficiary oh, really? of your efforts yeah. there. Yes. Do you, do you have any of the scores like Raiders or ET or Jurassic Park or anything that has the cover page that has like the cue breakdowns? Um, like well, I have a lot of the booklets, basically. I have a lot of the Star Wars scores. Did you do any of those? I have a lot of the Star Wars scores that were I didn't around. because they they weren't available at the time. The big ones, they were all Williams stuff, of course. That and, and Alien from Goldsmith and some Chris Young scores, too, because he let me copy copy a couple. But the bottom line is I figured, number one, people shouldn't be making money off of selling things like that mm-hmm. um and obviously it's a black market thing and it shouldn't be done in the first place probably because it's not the property of anyone but the movie studios who paid for it but it's going to be done regardless 
And I assumed that 99.9% of the people out there were like me and they just wanted to learn. They just wanted to find out some secrets and try to make music that maybe one day would be a shade, a shadow of what, you know, Goldsmith or Williams or someone like that did. So that, that opening, that opening chord to Alien, I don't remember what the starting note was, but it was literally like um, C, D, E, F sharp, G sharp, A sharp. It was just a whole tone scale, but it was spread out like the lowest basses were playing C and then a ninth above that um, the cellos were playing D and then a ninth above that the cellos were split and they were playing E and then a ninth above that the violas were playing F sharp and a ninth above that so everything was spread out by ninths and you got this huge six or seven eight maybe note like tetrachord that was whole tone but it had the tritone in there and it had like the it was like a major because of the E natural, but it also had the flat six. And that's what gave it that super cool sound. And I've never used that chord because I think anyone who knew film music would be like, ah, <laughs> um, but it is, I have used that idea of just space between the notes a, a thousand times. That was definitely the first kind of aha moment to me. So when you when you go to use that sort of technique, do you kind of sit at your keyboard, maybe patched into some string sounds and be like, okay, let me see how I can really spread out this sort of this this spicy voicing and and like how much how much is your theory mind engaged when you're using that technique and how much is it just kind of like experimenting? Let's see what these spread voicings sound like. Oh, that sounds cool. I want to throw that in there because you obviously the way you talk, you clearly know theory. And so I'm curious how much of that is is engaged when you're when you're composing, I guess, is, is a better way to frame the question. Sure, sure. And I think that's that's another good example of the 10,000 hours, because if this was Jason in 2006 or 2007 trying to figure out how to do dead space, then I, well, I always use a piano. I never use sampled or synthetic sounds. Uh, if I'm voicing for brass or for strings or for woodwind, I'm just using a piano sound because it's easier for me to hear the balance than to depend on having to go back and tweak all the volumes and velocities and expression and faders to get the balance the way I would want it to be in the orchestra where, I mean, you know, a a flute library may or may not be normalizing their sounds Mm. and the flute's going to be a different volume at the bottom of its register, really soft, than it's going to be when you get towards the kind of the top half of the register where it starts getting louder. And it's just easier for me to play a piano because the piano is going to be the same volume no matter what. So I can figure out if I like the way that that chord is sitting just by playing the piano notes, as soon as you put it to orchestra, obviously it has its own sound. It can be, it, for me, it's it's easier to jump off from the piano. So I would be doing that regardless. Um, but then I would be taking it to the samples and probably spending an hour trying to figure out how to get the samples to sound the way I was hoping it would sound in my head. But honestly, that all changed once I finished the first Dead Space, just because I had the equivalent of three days of recording double sessions So six three-hour sessions with the orchestra doing whatever I wanted. And we didn't record music. I don't know. I've done a thousand interviews on it, and I've talked about it a little bit on my YouTube channel. But the idea was, in a 30-second elevator pitch, we needed control over the scary music in Dead Space. And it needed, well, I wanted it to be really, really, really 
aleatoric and crazy. Mm-hmm. EA didn't ask for that. They just said they wanted it to be scary. I wanted it to be orchestra because I thought it needed to be organic, and I wanted it to be crazy orchestra so it would be like the Necromorphs, right? But in order to have control, like four layers of dynamic control for interactive purposes, we couldn't record the pieces. I couldn't write a two-minute piece of music and then record it because it actually was an eight-minute piece of music. And I think we did two hours in the score. So that's actually eight hours. And there's no way we could record eight hours. So the the pitch to, to EA, which I never thought they would do, is, okay, well, just give me all the money up front, haha. And I'm going to go record all this crazy stuff. And then I'm going to cut it up in the computer and I'm going to trigger it like in the computer. And that's how I'm going to write the music. And then you'll have control over everything. And they're like, great, go do that. And it was like, um, okay, so what do I do? Uh, if I want to get a texture, do I get it like a texture that's 20 seconds long at three different dynamic levels? Or do I get it like a 30 or 40 second texture, like at two dynamic levels? Or do I get them to do swells? Can I make the swells work in contact? Should I get more dynamics or more variety of notes? How do I get the balance? I mean, it's just question after question after question after question. So I literally spent like three or four months just pouring over scores, um, lots of Penderecki, because he's basically the father of all that stuff. Rest in peace. I can't believe he passed away last week. Um, but I, I studied all those scores and I just ripped everything apart and made tons of notes. And not until that first session... Did I have any idea what anything was going to sound like? And I tried everything under the sun. And every time I thought, well, that's it. I can't do anything else. Then you'd realize there's like 10,000 other variations on something you could try. So by the time I got to the third recording session for that first game, because I split it up into three, the last thing I wanted to do was have one three-day recording session and be like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm only in the first half of the first session. And there's six, you know, eight, 10, I got to do this for the next three days. This way I learned and I had about six months between each session. And by the third session, I knew exactly how to write what I wanted the sound to be in my head. It's like EA gave me a bunch of money to learn how to orchestrate crazy stuff (laughs) is what it came down to. Um, That's the long, the long answer, which uh, obviously I'm officially only good for long answers. I would instruct all the listeners to check out your vlog where you actually go in depth on how you orchestrated the uh, the aleatoric music with sheet music examples, which I found very illuminating and helpful. Sweet. That's great. You know, that's something I've probably only done a quarter of of the posts for YouTube about Dead Space. Um, it just so happened I had a, a little bit of a lull in my schedule and I crammed all those in in like four days and then I edited them and released them slowly and then it's been just pedal to the metal ever since. But I want to pick back up and do it more because it was it was an experience of a lifetime. I've never had a gig like that before, but I've also never taken on as much work and responsibility as that i don't i don't know anyone that's ever been given like oh here take all this money and sure the music will be fine 
but man, what if the music isn't fine, right? Like, what if you get out of the recording session after all these hours of prep and all these hours of recording, all these hours of editing, trying to get all the music done, and then they go, yeah, it's not really working, is it? That was my greatest fear, because it was just me, and it was a lot of a lot of work. I'm pretty sure that's when my hair started going gray. <laughs> did you, how did you deal with that? I mean, was that, for me, that sounds very anxiety-inducing. Was, was it? It was, you know, was yeah. anxiety-inducing? Is Was there a moment Absolutely. where you're like, I think I'm in the clear. I think this is actually going to work. Or was it like you were literally like scared to death until, you know, until you actually got all the stems and, and started mixing things together? You know, when, when, when did the anxiety cease when it came to all that sort I of think, resting on your shoulders? I, I think the creative anxiety ceased the next time I was at EA in San Francisco where Don's like, oh, wait, I got to show you something. Come here, take a look at this. I'm like, okay, cool. And he just showed me, you know, we're still in vertical slice mode. There's like hardly any playable game. And he just showed me the sequence that probably wasn't even in the final game where you're walking along this like plank kind of walkway up high and this necromorph kind of comes out of the shadows and the music he just edited literally stems from the recording session. It wasn't even anything that I had done to musically piece together what you hear in the final soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And it was the creepiest, like most horrific spine tingling thing that I had ever experienced. I didn't even recognize it as my own music because we had, if you're at a recording session, if you're with a good orchestra in in a 50 minute period, you know, you can do like maybe seven or eight minutes, an hour of finished music. Um, I'm talking about complicated music with a great orchestra, you know, Abbey Road or, or Fox in Los Angeles or something. So eight minutes to five minutes is sort of the window. If it's a lesser orchestra or more complicated stuff, you start dialing back on the minutes. Now with Dead Space, every hour, every 50 minutes, we walked away from a break. I had 50 minutes of material. Wow. Because there are no wrong notes, right? It's yeah, all just craziness. Random. So yeah. I, I, I came home with like 14 hours of material. So, um, so after cool. all was said and done for, and it's just, it was a lot to go through. Um, so I didn't recognize what he had used because there were so many different versions of everything, but it was like, okay, cool. So creatively we're going in the right direction. Now I just need to technically be able to put this together and, and deliver in a, in a timely manner. And I discovered at the very beginning, I needed to noise reduce everything because it was just, by the time I did these super quiet samples of like 60 string players in the room playing their quietest note, you play three notes and the noise floor is louder than the, you know, than the strings are. Mm, That's when I discovered RX. It was like version one of RX and it literally saved my life. And if for RX, for those of uh, people who are listening, you might not know it's a, it's an audio repair tool. Is that correct? Yep. Isotope. Yeah. They make some really great stuff. We might get into some, some geeky gear stuff. Cause I know you've talked about, you've got your heaven section and your hell section in your studio. <laughs> you send something through heaven, send something through hell. It's a series of amps and synths and stuff. I'm sure we could talk for hours, but I want to dive a little deeper into the idea that you're well known uh, for the, for people who know your, your work and your soundtrack and your, and your, uh, your process. You're obviously well known for pushing the boundaries of sound design, but I don't think anything tops your work on Tomb Raider and the construction of the instrument. So can you talk a little bit about that? All right, I'll give you the elevator pitch version of that because any one of these questions can be 30 minutes of talking. Oh, for sure. Um, I just, I get excited. In a perfect world. In a perfect world. 
Yeah, um, I, and I actually, I got to be honest, Matt, I'm getting more excited because this is called The Composer Code, and being able to talk to other composers is just, it's its almost like you finally uh, found that friend that gets you, and you can say things that, you know, even, you know, your kids or your wife or the audio director, like, they, they sort of understand, but when you start talking about some of these things, other oh, composers yeah. are like, oh, man, oh, man, that must have been really stressful. Like, they really get it next time and, i'm in raleigh i'm buying you a beer or two. Oh, please we're yeah gonna, we're gonna, yeah come we're come on by dive deep and it's not that i i want people to feel bad for me by any means but what i want other composers to understand and is that it's it's hard right um i'm i'm happy to be uh a source of um you know maybe motivation and a dose of reality as well. But I also, I don't want to bring anyone down by any means because I love what I do. But I love the idea of uh, maybe someone who's 10 years younger than me, who's been doing this 10 years less than I have. Maybe they're getting a little down in the dumps and they're thinking, well, I haven't made it, right? Like, when am I going to, this is just, I feel like I'm trudging along and I'm not going anywhere. And then, you know, maybe they hear me talking about the pitfalls and the anxiety and everything else. They're like, oh, it's not just me. Wow, this is like, you know, and not in a negative way. This is just part of the gig. It, it's because we're being creative and we're trying to be uh, monetarily, hopefully, a little successful so we can support our families. It's just part of the gig. And if we can bind together and, and, and bond and sort of commiserate, I think that that helps us when we're by ourselves in the room in the dark thinking, I'm just going to go ahead and email them and tell them I can't do this because they're going to fire me anyway. I mean, everyone always has negative feelings about themselves. And um, I think it's important for us composers to share that. You know, people don't talk about that. They always, they're always posting, oh, new soundtrack out, or hey, check out my new speakers, or hey, thanks, Manly, for giving me this awesome piece of $4,000 equipment, or... <laughs> Or whatever. And I think that's all great. And I understand you don't want to post negative things, but I think realism is is important. That's that's why I started doing the YouTube thing to to help and and to kind of lift the the lowest common denominator up a little bit, because we're all even though we're so far apart in our studios, we are all all in it together. Dude, everything you just described is like the the impetus and the mission statement and the vision of why I started this podcast like you oh, just nice. described it and encapsulated it in a way that I could never do all the way down to being in the dark with the email typed out <laughs> ready to send I quit yes. I can't do this I I know for a fact that there have been people that have come up to me in person at like conferences and stuff and said that these kind of conversations have helped them in, in that regard. And so, man, I just, I just want to say yes and amen to everything you just said, but, but, um, yeah, please well, continue. That's great. It is, it is important. And I've, I have yet to meet any composers. Now, obviously I don't know John Williams or Elmer Bernstein or Jerry Goldsmith or, um, Chris Young personally, I've been able to interact with them either on a fan level or on a professional level, and they act the same way. I've seen interviews with Jerry Goldsmith talking about imposter syndrome and, and everything else. And I have, uh, when we saw John Williams conducting, there, there was a, he's like at the hotel breakfast with a copy of The Planets and a red pen, like looking at trombone voicing over breakfast. I mean, unreal. these are normal 
right? These are normal, everyday people. And I do know personally, and I'm happy to call friends, a lot of folks in the TV and game world, and they are all just as down-to-earth, approachable, level-headed folks, guys and girls, as the rest of us. And we all go through the same torture. So here, here, yeah, I'm going to have to go back and listen to some of your other episodes now. Oh, please do. <laughs> I've got quite the uh, quite the cast of characters, which I'm sure many of which, if not all, I'm you know, with your experience in the industry, you've you you know are friends with, or at least uh, have engaged with to some extent. Great, great. So you mentioned Tomb Raider. That game. Um, okay, let's talk about specifically the instrument, which apparently a lot of people have criticized me for never giving it a name, but um, the sculptor and I always just called it the instrument, and that sort of just stuck. But this was for the I love how the it's reboot. like the sculptor and, and the instrument, like capital S, right, capital right. I. Well, like, yeah. he, he doesn't have a name. His <laughs> name is The Sculptor, and he made yeah. The Instrument. Oh, he's going to have a name in a minute, it makes, believe me. It makes it so um, epic. He was... <laughs> he's like a we'll char- just stick a with ca- that, then. He's he, like a character he, out of an thrilled. Elder Scrolls game. I spoke. Right, I spoke exactly. with the sculptor. <laughs> <laughs> the sculptor. Have you seen the sculptor yet? Did he give you like your trial to complete? That's right. The general idea. I was working on Tomb Raider. This is the reboot from 2013 mm-hmm. for a little over two years total, and a lot of the first six to nine months were just a lot of what we already talked about. I went out and visited them. I had like scripts. They gave me the whole pitch. I did what I always do, and we can pick up that question you had early on about when I'm starting a project, one of the first things I like to do is come up with a theme and put it in a suite. And it could be a four minute suite. Usually it's more like a 12 to 15 minute suite just because I'm doing just stuff. I'm just kind of stretching and trying out different sounds. Can you define musically speaking and it's just a big long piece of music. Okay. So basically you're picking (laughs) like a theme, like a motif and you're, and you're fleshing it out like in full. Exactly. Okay, cool. Yeah. And there, there's probably two minutes of action music in there or combat music or something that will reference the theme here and there, or maybe a secondary theme, maybe something I don't even know is a secondary theme. And the audio director says, Ooh, what's that? I like that. We should use that as a secondary theme. It's, it's musically getting the notes, but it's also from a kind of orchestration textural soundscape point, figuring out what sounds I want to use or, or more importantly, what sounds I don't want to use. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've found the more music I write, the more I'm happy taking things away and, and working with less. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm more creative that way. Um, now with Tomb Raider, it was, I wanted to have the theme on a piano cause I thought that was simple and universally appreciated it's a piano you can play nice and quietly it can also be played by other fans of tomb raider which i was no stranger to the amount of popularity of the game and i wanted folks to be able to do their own version without needing a big fancy custom sample library of orchestra sounds or anything like that like the idea of the simple piano that's how i start everything anyway so i started with a theme and i did the suite
And there was a lot of sort of textural metal scrapey kind of things that I was playing around my studio because in the game, she's on this island and there's literally the kind of the bad guys are called the scavengers and they're putting together these kind of amalgams from plane wrecks and things like that and living in them. So it has this very broken metal rusted sort of, you know, been out in the rain for too long look to it in an effort to find more things to hit because i'm a drummer and a percussionist and i've got a thousand bows and mallets and i'm used to bowing vibes and super balling uh bass drums and doing all those kind of conventional orchestral percussion things Mm -hmm. i just wanted more metal so i tried a couple of local scrap places nope it's illegal to take anything away you can only bring things in i was like okay and i ended up finding this guy named matt his last name's mcconnell matt mcconnell and i called him up because I heard that he was a cool local sculptor who maybe would let me just basically like rummage through his bin and find something he didn't want. And I'm in my bedroom in downtown Raleigh and we're talking for like 10 minutes and it turns out that literally I could look out my window and there was this little utility street in our neighborhood and his shop was right there. And I didn't even know that. I mean, he was literally a three minute walk from my house. So I went and met him and I found some cool stuff and it basically turned into, man, you should like, do you want to weld that together for you? you I mean, this would be, he was just so incredibly nice. It's like we're the same age. He was me as a sculptor, basically, um, or I was him as a composer. He works with metal and glass and and material the same way I work with um, sound and, and music. So we were kindred spirits. And over the period of about a month or so, we finally just decided that we were going to pitch the idea to Crystal Dynamics just to, for him to build something, to build some sort of an instrument that I could use. That's and so awesome. So Crystal Dynamics these, would basically it, fund the, the building of the instrument. Yeah, yeah. They commissioned him to make it, essentially. Now, what really blew me away was it was actually Alex Wilmer um, on the audio team. He's sort of my direct contact for all the music implementation in the game. I was bringing back these things and making these sounds, and I was telling him all about Matt, and I'm like, oh, it's so cool, and he's going to you know weld me something, and I was planning on paying Matt just on my own. Right. Like, oh, hey, take 500 bucks and do this, and here, do you want some? Let me pay you another 500 bucks, and you could make this, and Alex was the one that said, we should just commission him to build something. I could get a lot more money than $500. I was like, uh, that would be cool. Wow. So, um, that was amazing. And then on top of that, uh, you know, they're paying him to build it and they never, they never said like, send us sketches. We want to know what it's going to look like. Uh, what material are you planning? They were completely hands off. Wow. Like completely hands off. As a matter of fact, no one even knew what this thing looked like until a small portion of the audio team flew from San Francisco to North Carolina to film a behind the scenes thing. And they, we walked down to Matt's and they got to see it for the first time ever. And the game was finished. They finally got to see what the instrument looked like, which was an awfully cool experience. What sort of like sounds did it make or what, you know, what, what made it so unique? Well, first of all, um, if you can post a picture that has us standing in front of it, that would be good because you don't realize how big this thing is until you're standing next to it. It's bigger than a refrigerator. It's really big. And um, it was something that was made from a modular standpoint. So I never had the picture that you'll see. I never had that sitting in my studio. I had the little individual pieces. So there would be, for example, some glass bowls that Matt made at his studio 
and there were three of them, and they were three very distinct pitches. And I used those three bowls whenever anyone in the game said something about the island. I hit the bowls, and I know that sounds super like super simple, but if if you watch cinematics like on YouTube, they'll go, "We're never going to get off the island," and you hear "dong dong dong dong" in the background. Stuff like that just made it really easy to just take the sound that's brand new and i mean yeah people play bowls and glass bowls out there obviously but these specific bowls but with none these like your glass pitches, bowls exactly yeah. my, my glass bowls were were very um unique right back to camp so we also had essentially like a, a giant kitchen pot turned upside down with all these just waiting to pierce my eyeball and kill me pieces of thin rods of metal coming up out of the top and then sort of metal tongues coming off the side all around it so they were all every single one of them if you hit it or if you bowed it or you know kind of rubbed them out along it they were all different pitches kind of like a water phone but in a much creepier uh rusty like nasty kind of way i've got a couple of water phones and they have very pure sounds this was not pure intentionally not pure by any sense and i could even do the the super ball trick which if you have a big concert bass drum or a timpani or any kind of drum if you have a a mallet you know like a stick that's got a little what looks like a rubber ball at the end um you can Mm. rub it against it and depending on how hard you press it it'll, it'll vibrate and it makes these like groaning sort of whale call kinds of sounds so i could do that super ball trick on the top of this thing but instead of being a skin like a drum it was metal so it was this like really like like modulating kind of it almost sounded like a pad basically it was like i need some metal i need some glass and i need some wood that's all i told matt and that's what the the instrument was designed for for those sounds but he did so much more than that and then crystal really took it to the extreme and for all the ui of the game they wanted me to record just individual just completely naked hits of everything like okay bow this and hit that and tap this so the whole entire ui of the game is built from the instrument whenever you hit the menu or achievement unlocked or any sort of a thing pops up those are all sounds from the instrument which is also super cool they really embraced it which which i really appreciated i I felt very appreciated on that game makes me want to go to the hardware store as soon as this pandemic is over and make my own instrument yeah man you could just far cry primal it like all day long people i give you the instrument The very beginning of the game is is nothing but the instrument. The clip you just heard was from a behind-the-scenes video on the Tomb Raider 2013 soundtrack. I'll go ahead and put the link to that video at composercode.com slash graves, as well as all other links mentioned in this talk. Back to the interview. A good general bit of advice for anyone either starting out in the industry or maybe they're halfway through and they're starting feeling a little burned out. I wouldn't even say um, the general advice would be just focus on writing music, but just focus on working in audio in general. Because I spent mm-hmm. I spent a couple of years before I got into games. I had my own little tiny production company with a couple of employees and they did all the video stuff and I did all the audio stuff and I didn't write a lick of 
music for probably a year and a half, but I was recording bands and recording radio spots and politicians were lined up doing their little, I'm Jason Graves and I paid for this ad, mm-hmm. um, you know, nice. and putting music underneath it and working with producers yeah. and editing the voiceover to fit in the right amount of time and learning Pro Tools and how compression works and EQ and I could go on and on and on, but it was like learning the basics of how audio production worked and i did not go to school for that they did not teach that at usc yeah i didn't even own a microphone you know i had to just buy a mic and figure out how to get it to work and i think if you have general goals um you know working in audio quote unquote whether it be radio or tv or assisting a composer and you're in the studio uh, getting them coffee you're going to be a lot happier a lot earlier and feel like you've sort of at least achieved something than if you say, I want to be a game composer. That's like saying, I want to be a movie star, right? I, I want to be like the next Tom Cruise or the next uh, Dwayne Johnson or, or whatever. You're setting such a specific goal up for yourself, which is fine, but it's a long-term, like slogging through the mud, 10 plus year kind of goal. And I've always found it's a little more satisfying to be a little more grounded and, um, and realistic. Um, so for me, it was always music. I wanted to do music. I was originally focused on film and TV. That's what I went to school at USC for, University of Southern California. And actually, I'm surprised they let me graduate because about halfway through my very first semester, I went to work for a former graduate of the program who needed an assistant. And I was doing all this like bad reality television um, but literally, I could see my name up in the credits on the Discovery Channel every Saturday. And I was like, I wrote the music for that TV episode. That is so cool. Now, it's stupid music, and it's a silly TV show. But, you know, I still get royalties from that stuff. Um, yeah. And I was learning a lot, dealing with producers and cutting the, the dubs to three-quarter-inch tape while the messenger's standing outside waiting to take it to the stage to mix it. And I ended up not even going to school. I was I was just doing the doing the work. Um But then I realized that I wasn't very creatively satisfied because I was kind of at the bottom Mm -hmm. of the ladder. Uh, But I moved back to North Carolina and I was doing a bunch of that stuff that I just talked about, voiceovers and radio spots. I did that for two or three years before I kind of fell into video games. And video games were creatively satisfying. I went from spending literally seven weeks on a Honda spot with my boss where we wrote the same thing for seven weeks, like version 110, and I'm not exaggerating, Wow. to, um, to in seven weeks having written 45 minutes of music for like the King Arthur video game or something like that. It was like, okay, this is something that I can really enjoy. Um, but see, the same thing could be said about Swamp Thing. I was doing 35 minutes of music a week for Swamp Thing. I also work on another show called Project Blue Book with Daniel Wall, who's an amazing composer. And we both work on those cues, every single cue together. Uh, we just finished the second season a couple of months ago. And um, that's incredibly satisfying um, because I'm just getting to write music. That's the same reason I do trailers or, or library music. Mm. Um, that's a completely different set of skills, right? Trailer stuff is so over the top and, and crazy in your face. And it's more, almost more about production than the finesse of a chord progression. And I'm not sure. bashing trailer music at all. Don't get me wrong, but it is definitely like you want to be in a certain key with a certain tempo and you got to kind of do the same thing, but in your own way and still have it melt your face off like through your phone speakers. Or something. Right. They, they, right. They right. all prove interesting challenges and, um, 
I did a whole bunch of trailer stuff before I started on Swamp Thing, and I did my first couple of cues for Swamp Thing and sent them off, and Brian's only comment was, you know, they're kind of looking for things, because... Um, so Brian Tyler uh, gave me feedback on the first couple of episodes just to make sure things were going well. And then after that, he just sort of let me do my thing. Um, but the one thing he said was they want like sort of a trailer vibe, especially with the beginning of the show when it has the recap. And I want it to be more like a movie trailer because the temp was just mm-hmm. like kind of doing its thing. like And I was like, oh, I can do movie trailers. And I, you know, I put in all these big hits and huge things that I had done in the trailer. Right. Exactly. And they were like, perfect. And so the, that kind of became a signature part of the show was that super big over the top thing. And I, I remember thinking like, I didn't know you could write like trailer music style production for television, but that's mm-hmm. what the score was. It was like super over the top and it would have taken me probably half that season to even get my production chops to where they needed to be if I hadn't been doing that trailer stuff beforehand. Um, so it all, it all kind of, you know, cyclically infers everything else. You know, you never, you never really waste your time. I don't think you're, you're always, at least I feel like I'm always learning something new with, with everything that I try. So maybe the, maybe the moral of the story, uh, for younger composers or composers just now trying to ooze into the industry, as we say, is to, not be so uh, precious, maybe, about certain jobs that we take, like turning things down or refusing to do things because I don't want to edit podcasts because that's not game audio or, you know, I don't want to mix yeah. things because that's not game audio or I don't want to do TV or whatever because that's not game audio because all of those things have informed your game audio career. You know, it's I'm sure Absolutely. it's because of the connections you've made. Uh, doing those things that that you've had so much success in game audio so I think that's a that's a powerful reminder and on that note I wanted to ask one of the questions I was going to ask which is a perfect segue into what we're talking about is if you could go back and give your younger self advice knowing what you know now uh, what might you say to it to a a young uh, uh, excited exuberant Jason Graves um, just, just starting down this, this journey. You know, I've been asked that before and, um, I'm, and I think it's a great question. I'm not knocking the question, but before I've always sort of thought and given some kind of, you know, technical bit of advice or, or, or something like that, but we've been, I think refreshingly sort of internal and emotional so far, and I'm more than happy to talk about some gear, but I think I would probably say something like, um, you know, just, just relax, dude. It only gets better from here. Cause that's kind mm. of, that's kind of what I feel like. Um, it's real easy to be caught up in the moment and, um, you know, for, for games, uh, sometimes you have the privilege like I did with Tomb Raider where they just say, what's your schedule like? Are you available? But there are also other times on, I don't even know what any of these games were, uh, but stuff where they want to have a, a commissioned, demo and you spend a week or a week and a half on something and you know you're not really getting properly paid for it you're basically just taking all your money and hiring some live musicians maybe but you pour your Mm -hmm. just your heart and soul into this and uh for some reason that you never even find out about you don't get the job and that mm. seems like this soul-crushing end of the world, like, well, what am I going to do now? And, you know, it, it's okay. It, 
it's it's only going to get better. You know, where you are now is not as good as where you're going to be a year from now. Um, at least this is what I'm telling myself because I mm-hmm. know what a nerd I am. And I know that's why I have so many orchestration books and I've read them and have all the little tabs out on the side. That's why I just bought the Jerry Goldsmith Basic Instinct um, Omni Music Publishing Conductor Score that was available last week. And I've already gone through like half of it because I just love, I love learning. Um, yeah. And I did not go to school for any of this stuff. You know, my schooling was like abstract John Cage music and undergrad and then kind of technical, like this is how, uh, you know, yeah, the contrabasses sound an octave below written. Like that, mm-hmm. uh, USC was great, don't get me wrong, but it was very um, what you make of it. And I was always the geek that showed up early and was bugging Chris Young about things and stayed late and was bugging Chris Young about things. The more time you put in, the better you're going to get. And a year from now, you're going to be in a a hopefully more recognizable position externally for people to know you, but definitely an improvement internally from what you were doing a year ago. And, And it takes time, you know, it takes time. What's so funny about your your answer is that I had Gary Scheiman on the podcast. Uh, I think it was last year. And of all the people I've had on the show, I think you and him are probably the two. Uh, I might be mistaken, but you and him are probably the two, maybe Grant Kirkhope as well, who've been in the <laughs> industry the longest. And I asked Gary, I said, man, what, what would you tell young Gary? And he said the exact same thing you did. He said, stop stressing out so much. So yeah. I just think that's that's really interesting and and young composers and and you know mid-range composers intermediate composers as they're you know maybe establishing their career just take heed of that advice cuz now we have two wise you know you know uh composers who have said this you know don't stress out so much just relax so I think you know that's there's something to that back then we didn't have a lot of technology you know it was like three quarter tracks and and s760 roland samplers and things like that now that's all there is so if i were starting out today if i was 22 and starting out today it would all be about you know it's not the it's not the hammer it's the carpenter right it's not right. the tool it's the craftsman and it's all about improving yourself internally improving your mind learning about harmony learning about theory if that's the kind of music that you want to write or if you want to do like dance stuff you know learning about the production of that and how that harmony and theory works i kind of like learning about all of it but um it's all about getting better mentally and not if you have like the newest sample library or the newest plugin or whatever because i got to tell you i have most of all that stuff and i usually end up falling back on just kind of the basics because there is very much such a thing as like having too many plugins, too many sounds. Well, this is a great segue. We have talked a lot about sort of the internal emotional side of things. So let's uh, let's cleanse our palate with some good old fashioned geeky gear talk. What what are oh, some please. what's some gear? What's I know you you are quite you you know you've got quite the studio got quite the collection i've seen you know just your vlog and you've you're, you know, the way you've described kind of uh, your your recording space and uh, there's lots of lots of flashing lights and analog synths <laughs> all around you yeah um and i'm sure we could talk about that for another hour so maybe what we could focus on is what are some uh some gear either physical or digital that's just been exciting you lately it's been inspiring you you know uh physically 
the synth that has really proven limitless in inspiration is the Novation Peak. I think it's because it's it's like so many different kinds of synthesis in one box. It can do a little bit of everything. You know, it could do like the massive thing or it could do the zebra thing or it could do like obviously super fat analog kinds of things. I grew up, you know, like a single keyboard and I knew that keyboard like the back of my hand. So that's sort of my mentality when it comes to hardware. Unless there's a job where I'm like, I have to have that sound and I know I can get it immediately right out of the box if I buy this piece of gear. That's the only time I'll buy something without having conquered everything else in the studio. I I will say, everyone talks about external gear, right? And, you know, the sound of a console and, oh, if you have a pair of physical compressors, it's so much better than the, the software compressors and all that stuff. And I was buying all of that hardware in a really well-made studio, um, what, like six years ago. So it's kind of when like UAD, Universal Audio was becoming more popular. And I was curious to see what the fuss was about. I've got like outboard distressors. That's a kind of compressor and some Neve compressors and like a, a big fat manly massive passive EQ and an API 2500 bus compressor. And um, the Clarifonic uh, stereo like parallel EQ. So I was buying all this stuff and then comparing it to the software versions just out of curiosity. And as as everyone's always said, like I pull up the 2500 from Waves and I pull up my 2500 and I set them to the exact same thing. No, they don't sound the same. Does one sound better than the other? Uh, Well, I think my 2500 physical copy sounds better, but that's because I'm used to the way it sounds. Mm-hmm. Can I tweak the Waves 2500 to sound like my physical 2500? Not not quite, but I got to tell you, the UAD 2500 sounds identical, not with the same settings, but I can make it sound the same way. And all I've really figured out is that hardware is just an expensive way to get a sound quicker. Hmm. I don't okay. think there are limitations nowadays to software, especially with things like UAD, because it's all about the processing power. I've got three um, of the Octo cards from UAD, and that's only so that I can just run lots and lots of, basically I'm using EQs and compressors from from UAD. And then reverb, Mm -hmm. I've got some external reverbs that I use. It's not a limitation. It's just a speed fix more than anything else. I can run the soundtrack that I was working on today. I can run that through my outboard just shift a couple knobs real quick and everything's great as opposed to spending 60 minutes like pulling up different plugins and tweaking them and I know how the hardware works and you know it's like a it's like a I don't want to say quick fix because that sounds cheap but it's a tried and true pro solution it's it's going to yeah. sound exactly the way I want it to sound I don't need to worry about my processor you know hitting the top end and I have to disable tracks or anything like that. And I know that was interesting question, because but, um, there's a, no, it's okay. But there's, there's always been this argument of whether analog versus digital is better, but it's possible. Right. What I'm hearing you say is that maybe the argument could be reframed as to what's faster because in the life of a composer, obviously time is money. So, uh, I think it's interesting cause you could, you, you know, you could still say analog and digital, you know, equipment could really achieve the same sound it's just that the digital will take more time, more tweaking. There's not a physical thing that you could just reach over and grab. And, and that, that obviously costs the composer time. So I just think it's a, 
it's a helpful way to think about it. Yeah, and there's a there's a give and take too. Um, a lot of stuff I could use my Oberheim for a synth sound, but it's a lot quicker for me to pull up Zebra and find a preset that uh, that Matt the Unfinished made that's going to be well, it's just a lot faster. And most of the time, I'm fighting a deadline, so my hardware is there as a luxury, basically. Like if I want to, I've never used any of it on TV. Let me just say that it's impossible. Um, I got to be able to pull it up. It's got to be able to recall and and everything else. But if I'm working on a game that needs some sort of some sort of a cool synth sound, then yeah, man, I'm pulling that Matrix 1000 up and finding a cool pad and running it through like my space pedal into something else and then compressing it and then going back into the computer because it's like zero processing and it's the sound that I want immediately. Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily a necessity. You know, I could have done it gotcha. a different way in the box with the same kind of result. It just would have taken longer. So the Novation Peak has been really exciting you lately. Is there anything else yeah. in your studio that's been kind of just like inspiring you? It can be like an instrument, a physical instrument or digital, anything like that. I'm looking around the room as we speak. You know, it's it's like, who's your favorite child? Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we all have a favorite. Come on. No, just kidding. That's terrible. Well, you know, obviously I went to the the peak first. That's okay. So the peak, I mean, right. that's like what a twelve or fifteen hundred dollar instrument. You know what else I actually get a lot yeah. of mileage out of, and I'm not just endorsing Novation, but the Base Station Two is a surprisingly awesome little tiny three hundred dollar analog one voice synth that I almost yep. use on um, on everything, uh, not just for bass lines either. I mean, like a plucky like kind of harp thing or it the knobs feel great it sounds really good it records all the midi and it's so inexpensive i um my kids make fun of me because they say i always sound like i'm doing an ad but it's the honest truth i wouldn't say it if i didn't mean it yeah that's cool do you just out of curiosity uh you your kids are older do they uh do they play music or you know what do they think about you know dad's career as a composer well, you know, we talked about um, kids are so resilient, they'll get used to anything, and they've they've grown up with me doing this, so to them it just seems like normal. Um, now, what's been interesting is recently they're 18 and 15 now, so they're finally old enough to start playing some of the games, um, the scary games, you know, that... Yeah. I'm sort of known for, and they haven't played Dead Space yet, but we did go through uh, Until Dawn and Man of Medan, both from Supermassive, and I think they got a kick out of just, you know, be like a, a scare would happen, and they'd jump, and then just look at me and go, thanks, Dad. Oh, my <laughs> gosh, that's amazing. You know, but they also know Barney, uh, Barney Pratt's the audio director. He came and stayed at our house uh, for a couple of days before we went to a recording session one time. And then we went to London and visited him and like went out and picked blackberries and ate dinner at his house. So they they know they know the people making the games and it's sort of a cool insider kind of thing. Um, I, I would like to think that they think that's cool because I think that's cool. And my my youngest uh, plays ukulele and sings and she actually sang she did all the vocals on this new soundtrack um coming out uh the next supermassive game um what's dark pictures anthology the next game that's coming out is called little hope wow and she awesome. sang lead vocals she sang lead vocals on on all the cues and did a really really good job it's very cool 
That is super cool. Well, you know, I, uh, I always think when, as I've, I'm going to have two boys, I'm always like, you know, if we want to start oh, a your heart, that's cool. But if we, if we want to play sports, that's cool too. I'm not going to pressure you either way, but it would be awesome if you were into music. Yeah. I, I pretty much, um, I think my greatest fear having, having two girls is that, um, they're going to, you know, the whole Freudian thing, um, they're going to want to like date some guy that's like an artist or even worse, a musician or even worse oh. than that, a composer. And it's like, please God, oh, no. <laughs> I know. Right. It's, Go it's for an account. It's stressful enough. Right. Yes, please. Someone that, you know, is, is dependable in terms of, of income. <laughs> right. That is so funny, dude. Well, man, it's been, it's, I'm sure we could talk for another hour. It's been quite a, it's been a, it's been a long and uh, extremely rewarding conversation. I want to wrap up this interview with the lightning round where I'm just going to give uh, short questions. You give short answers, just gut, gut reaction to these questions. Um, are uh, you ready butterfly. for the lightning round? Oh yeah, sure. Go ahead. Oh, that was, that was the answer <laughs> to number one. What the heck? <laughs> All right. The, your desert Island album, non video game music. 2112. That's rush, right? Oh my God. Are you kidding me? No, <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm sorry. This podcast yes, it is, is over. You're ex- dude. yes, it's I'm so rushed. sorry. Are you kidding me? I'm so sorry, dude. Yes, I, dude. I'm I'm You're not a rush guy. I apologize. Well, here's the thing, because I really like you know the Everly Brothers and you know Paul Simon and the Beatles and but for some reason I missed the Rush craze. I'm forgive me. I know you're a drummer. And yeah. and I and I know Neil Peart, you know, may he rest in peace. His contribution to the drumming world is immense, and he's just an, an incredible artist. So I, 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 I prostrate myself before you and beg of your forgiveness. But yes, twenty one twelve. Okay, that's fine. You fell on your sword for the lightning round. <laughs> that's right, I did. Okay, Desert Island album, video game music. I don't listen to a lot of video game music. Um, oh, hot take. Yeah, can't really... Well, you're probably too busy writing it. Well, you know, it's one of those things. It's like when I started Tomb Raider, someone was like, oh, did you go listen to every Tomb Raider? I'm like, I ran as far away from every Tomb Raider soundtrack ever made, like, as quickly as I could, because I don't want to be unintentionally or subconsciously influenced by what came before, unless it's a prerequisite by the client, which it never has been. So yeah, sorry, don't listen to video game music, especially my own. Well, that's okay. Second, uh, third question... I know you're a foodie, so if you could have any meal and, you know, price was no object for dinner tonight, what would you pick? And it could just be a hamburger, but just any meal tonight for dinner, what would you say? Oh, something Mexican sounds really good. Some some Mexican. I, I don't know why. Or maybe I some, oh Mexican. no, I I know what it would be. It would, it would be um, either you know, super expensive sushi. That's what it would be. Yeah. Love super expensive sushi. Yeah, definitely. I've never actually I probably never had super expensive sushi, but I've had really nice sushi and I can imagine that the super expensive kind would be really good. Yeah, it's it's just a difference of um flavor profiles. Uh like I've I've had, you know, I've had like you said, like expensive sushi in in New York or a couple of places like that that were good, but um I was in Sweden and some uh, some audio folks took me out with this game I was working on and it was like super like high end sushi and every piece of everything tasted completely different. It was just like explosions of flavor in your mouth, like every wow. 
and they just kept bringing it out and bringing it out and it was just like an endless parade of color and flavor i loved it that sounds incredible what's something that you're looking forward to either in music or just in life in general current lives nonwithstanding. um well i imagine probably currently to, yeah you know for this to end of course um uh, looking forward to yeah so much for the lightning round um <laughs> it's more like a slow well, thunderstorm yeah it's like the <laughs> tortoise <okay>. um <laughs> exactly i'm i'm very like 24 hour driven so i don't have because especially all these projects are so in flux all the time um you know things get postponed or or even canceled. Um, I'm usually only about 24 hours ahead of myself projecting forward. And I guess what I'm looking forward to now is um, really digging into a couple of these new projects that are getting ready to start. But it's not a good answer because I can't say anything about them. What has been inspiring you lately? This could be in music or just in life or just a person. What's been inspiring you? Hmm. These are really good questions, but they're hard to answer quickly. I know this is, I should rename this the lightning round to the moderately fast, but still contemplative round. <laughs> the, the contemplation round. Um, That's right. Uh, well, honestly, um, what's been the most inspiring lately is it's spring. So we have like lots of uh, baby chickens <laughs> and they're really fun. <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. Which in, which leads me to the next question in the lightning round is, can you please give okay. me a full inventory of all your animals? I physically cannot because um, we've never actually uh, written it down, but I can, off the top of my head, give you some examples. Sure. How about an <laughs> estimation? Yeah. Just the fact that you don't Jeez. know exactly how many animals are on your property should tell the audience everything they yes. need to know about your yes. animal collection. But please, I would love um, to hear an estimation of all your animals. And, you know, some of them, it'd be like if someone said, like, I own uh, 37 fish. And it turns out they just have this giant 100-gallon fish tank, right, with all these right. little fish in it. Uh, to a certain That's extent, fair. it is like that. Like, if, if I say totally um, there are 17 chickens across the hall from me, people would probably picture, you know, like mass chaos, but they're all babies. They're all like right. two to four weeks old. And I know, this is a very directional mic, so they probably haven't come through the mic, but I can hear them peeping and talking. We keep them in the house until they're six weeks old so they can stay warm and safe. That's um, awesome. Yeah, so we've got uh, chickens and, and ducks and geese and, and a big turkey. Uh, that's probably like 25 maybe, but you know, most of them are outside in a, in a big sort of petting zoo type area. I'm staring at a bearded dragon right now who hangs out with me in the studio. His name's Eddie and uh, nice. he's super cool and a lot of fun. I've got a tortoise in the front yard who's only about four years old. So he's kind of like football sized. He's not a huge tortoise, but he will be huge in maybe 30 years. He'll be like one of the ones you see at the zoo. That's the size of like a tire. Um, nice. Uh, we also have some hissing cockroaches and a python upstairs in one of my daughter's wow. rooms, uh, a, a dove that was taken from our aviary when he was born. He's an albino dove. He lives in my other daughter's room. His name's Julian uh, and he's super sweet. So she keeps him in there. And then we have an aviary outside that has like seven to 10, you know, parrots in it and some doves, you know, like African greys. Just I, I could name the 
yeah, no one would know what kind of parrots I'm talking about. Medium to large size birds that like to make lots of noise. And one of them in particular loves whistling John Williams songs because that's what I whistle to her. That's amazing. (laughs) So you haven't lived until you've heard a parrot do like an impromptu on Jurassic Park and like do her own little thing with it. (laughs) That sounds if you can if you can get a video of that and send that to me at some point. I mean, no pressure, but I that would I would be eternally grateful because that sounds incredible. It's 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 kind of amazing because I whistle stuff to them all the time when I'm outside and it's not like I'm just whistling John Williams. Obviously, he's very whistleable. Right. Um, but Raiders of the Lost Ark, Close Encounters and uh, the last six months, it's been Jurassic Park. Those are the ones that they pick up. And now they're doing these mashups, especially uh, this one particular African Grey who are like by far well-known as the smartest parrots around the African greys. She'll do yeah. a mashup of Jurassic Park and Indiana Jones and then throw some like close encounters in at the end just for fun. <laughs> that is incredible, dude. Dude, you should absolutely post that if you by chance get that on video because that will go viral. I will, I will try. They're incredibly smart and usually they know when I'm trying to record them and they won't make a noise. What else? So the tortoise and the parrots, uh, we had some goats, but I felt like they needed more space. So they went to a farm um, nearby that's got like acres and acres of property. We just didn't have enough space for the goats. And then, of course, we've got like nine cats, I think, but three of them live outside. They're like outdoor cats that, you know, take care of the mice. And then the rest of them are inside, kind of partitioned around the house, depending on, uh, like my daughter has a cat in her room. We have a cat in our room. Uh, the rest of them kind of free range downstairs. Seven dogs, I think, going from a, like a Shizu to a Great Dane and everything in between. Um, wow. We had some other animals when we first moved, like some sugar gliders and chinchillas and even some rats. But a lot of the smaller animals, they have a fairly short life, you know, like less than five years. So some of those have passed away just from from old age more than anything else. Um, I'm trying to think what else we have. Yeah, that might be it, more or less. I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but, you know. Do the seven dogs, do they like live in the house or are they kind of like indoor, outdoor all over the place. They're all over the place. You know, we, we've got a lot of space out here. Um, and it's a big house. Uh, we originally, ironically, we're going to move to a smaller house. And this just ended up being the perfect property. And it was like a thousand square feet bigger than our previous house, which was already too big for us. But as a result, it doesn't feel like we've got all these dogs. You know, they're not running amok. Um, none of them are puppies. And they've got lots of space. Plus, they're they're outside when the weather's nice. And they're sleeping inside <laughs> when whenever they're in. Like, we won't see our Great Dane for hours. He just sleeps on this couch in the library. It's like, Dexter, where are you? He's just, he's sleeping. They're notoriously lazy. That sounds amazing. Your house sounds like so much fun <laughs> because I, I love animals, but unfortunately my son, my three-year-old son is uh, quite allergic. So unfortunately yeah. we can't have any dogs or cats uh, in our house at the time, but man, I, I'm obsessed with animals. And so your house just sounds like just a party between all your gear and your studio and all your animals. I don't know if I'd want to leave. Sounds amazing. It's definitely, you know, the the animals don't care about deadlines or like harmony um, or milestones or whether or not you've been paid. They just want to hang out. And we just got some bees. It's the spring. So we got a, a new thing of bees um, out in the front. Wow. Front of the property. That's awesome. So we've got like bee suits and everything. It's it's so much fun. Um, yeah, we we intentionally came out here with the idea of uh, 
kind of getting away from the the rat race, sorry for the pun, and just doing our thing. And the animals, for, for me, really help me decompress. You know, I see them first thing in the morning, and then probably half of them I'll see throughout the day or at the end of the day. And it is kind of like having a, a, little, a little zoo. I mean, it takes some work, but I spend less than an hour a day doing things I have to do to like feed them or clean up after them or anything like that. It's not like it's killing my creative time or anything like that. It's it's actually quite the opposite. It's it's very refreshing, especially when the weather's nice and we can spend more time with the ones outside. That just sounds amazing. I mean, it sounds like my paradise. <laughs> I kind of want to be quarantined at your house. Yeah, come on over anytime. All right, I will. <laughs> Jason, thank you so much, man. Appreciate you taking the time out. This has been such an awesome conversation. Like seriously, new composers, you know, composers midway through seasoned composers. I feel like anybody can, can get a lot of value out of this. So I really appreciate it, man. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure, Matt. Thanks for all the great questions. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Composer Code. I really hope it was helpful or at least entertaining. I have over 20 other in-depth interviews with game composers you can listen to right now for free at ComposerCode.com. So definitely check those out there. You'll also find some helpful articles and resources and videos and blog posts all about making music for games. If you want to help offset some of the hosting costs of keeping Composer Code online, consider throwing me a buck or two at patreon.com slash composer code. I would very much appreciate it. Doing so also helps me justify putting in more time to make the show the best it can be. So links for everything I've mentioned in this episode will be in the description. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.